And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning and we trust that you are here in this place with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is one of those readings, isn't it? About five or six times a year, the gospel lesson assigned for the week will end on a real downer. And then, because of the way our liturgy is written, I'm forced to say the gospel of the Lord. And you all say praise to you, Lord Christ, as though you're really happy to have heard this. His Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Um, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Indeed, what we have here doesn't seem to be something that we would want to praise Jesus about, does it? In fact, this is a quite disturbing vision of God's kingdom. God is the king, and he forgives the servant who is us. So far, so good. But then, if we fail to turn around and forgive others, we get, um, is it handed over to be tortured? (laughs) Unsettling, to say the least, and bad news for sure. Now, if you'll remember, last week we also had a reading that didn't, on the surface, seem to have very much good news in it. Uh, Church discipline, which we read from this same chapter, on its face didn't feel like a topic full of forgiveness and grace. But with some careful interpretation, we were able to see that even Jesus' plan for discipline, interpersonally and in the church, was actually shot through from stem to stern with good news. And of course, Jesus himself was the linchpin. His finished work for sinners was the fulcrum on which the whole thing turned. And this week, you'll be surprised to hear that we're going to find the exact same thing is true. There is good news even here, and it's all about Jesus. But before we get to Jesus, we're going to go back in time a little bit, back a little further to the Jewish sacrificial system. As you may know, in the Old Testament, the Lord had set up a system for his people to be forgiven of their sin. If you look at the first seven chapters of Leviticus are full of all the rules and regulations surrounding this sacrificial system. There are laws for animal offerings, laws for grain offerings, uh, laws for intentional sin, laws for unintentional sin. There's even laws around how to sacrifice if the priest himself is the sinner, as though that would ever happen. That's a joke. Thank you. 
In essence, though, like the ram that the Lord provided in place of the sacrifice of Isaac, God's people were commanded for generations to offer to the Lord sacrifices in exchange for his forgiveness. They would come to the temple, for instance, and offer an animal's blood to God, praying that he would accept that faithful gift in exchange in place of their own blood. They had sinned, but this animal was going to pay the price. But there's a problem. You see it, right? It's, it's one problem with two sides, like a coin. On the one side, this forgiveness is conditional. You have to obey. You have to offer something worthwhile and in accordance with God's command to get the forgiveness. You do the right thing, and then you are forgiven. And on the other side, that forgiveness even once you get it, is impermanent. It's not lasting. It only lasts a year. You have to come right back to the temple the following year, offering again the first fruits of your harvest or the best lamb of your flock again to get forgiven again. And the year after that. And the year after that. And so on. This Conditional and impermanent forgiveness is very similar to the way forgiveness works in Jesus' parable here, isn't it? We have a slave who owes his Lord a huge sum, is about to be sold along with his wife and children and all his possessions to pay the debt, and he begs the Lord for mercy, and the Lord does in fact forgive the debt. Good news! But then... That slave turns around and does not extend the same mercy and forgiveness to a fellow slave who owes him a much smaller sum. And what happens? Well, his own forgiveness is revoked. It turns out it was conditional. It wasn't permanent. It's bad news after all. He was forgiven, apparently, with the requirement that he then turn around and forgive others. And when he doesn't, he finds himself handed over to be tortured until such a time as he might pay his entire debt. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this? How can we understand this story? Is there any good news here? Or is this finally the sermon where I send you back out into the world in fear and trembling, warning you that if you don't forgive as you have been forgiven, God will revoke your forgiveness and hand you over to be tortured? Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, spoiler alert, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to send you out at the end of this service with the exact same words I always use. Let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we'll all say together, thanks be to God, followed by three alleluias. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. So the question for us now is how do we get from here to there? How do we get from so my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
How do we get from there to thanks be to God? Alleluia. 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 Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus. We must, as we read this passage about forgiveness, remember the context in which we find it. Jesus tells the story in response to a question from Peter. Lord, he says, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts. And then he goes right into it. The story is in response to Peter's question. And see, Peter has asked Jesus for the rules, for the requirement, for the law. And his question betrays, I think, a common misunderstanding and a great theme that we see throughout Scripture. The things that we humans think are difficult are actually impossible. How often should I forgive? As many as seven times? That sounds really hard. But I'm good if I do that, right? And then Jesus, as he always did when confronted with questions about the law, ups the ante. He knows what's behind Peter's question and what is behind so many of our questions when we ask about the law, when we ask about the rules. We're asking, how can I make sure that I'm a good person? So Jesus tells this story that surely made Peter and the rest of the disciples recoil in horror, just like it does to us. Because let's be clear. The law, the expectation is for us to forgive. You should forgive. But not once. Not seven times. Not even 77 or 70 times seven times, as this verse is sometimes translated. We are to forgive until forgiveness is oozing out of every pore of our body, until forgiveness is as common to us as breathing. We are to forgive and forgive and forgive. That's why knowing ourselves, when we read this story, we recoil in horror. This kind of forgiveness is too glorious, too wonderful. It's beyond us. No amount of striving will achieve it. Seven times, Peter? Let me tell you about forgiveness. This is a story intended to raise the bar of the law, to show Peter how small he's thinking, to show Peter his sin, his lack of forgiveness seven times, and by extension to show us our sin too, and to remind us that by our own obedience and strength, righteousness is impossible. It's like we prayed this morning in the collect. Without you, we are unable to please you. So here's the key to understanding this story. Jesus is talking here about a kingdom of heaven of which his atoning sacrifice is not yet a part. Let me tell you what I mean. 
We modern Christians love the idea of a forgiving God, a loving God. We like that the old sacrificial system isn't needed anymore. I mean, could you imagine? Every year, bring an iPad to church and sacrifice it to God. That'll earn you forgiveness for one year. We don't think like that. We think of God as just a loving God, as a forgiving God. But since we don't sacrifice iPads, it's easy for us to lose touch with why God forgives in the first place. That something had to die to earn our forgiveness. Jesus tells this story to remind us. It's easy to think that God forgives us just because. Because he loves us. And since we think we do pretty well most of the time, it makes sense that the Lord would be forgiving the few times we do mess up. But Jesus, who sees into the human heart, sees the way we really are. He sees that all of our questions are just like the question Peter asked. How many times should I forgive, Lord? As many as seven times? What do I have to do to be good? How little do I have to do to be good? What's the minimum I can get away with to be counted righteous? That's the human question. That's the question a sinner asks. We want to know what the law is. And so Jesus says, oh, you want to know what the law is? And he gives us exactly that. Jesus wants to remind the people to whom he's speaking and us that righteousness cannot come from our effort. It must come from outside our story. Hear me. Righteousness comes from outside our story. So I'm going to tell you this story again, and this time listen for what's not there. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went out and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So, Jesus says, my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister 
from your heart. Now, do you hear it? There's no Jesus character in this story. There's no substitute. There's no one who would take an unpayable debt onto himself forever. This story describes a kingdom of heaven bound only by the law. Without the good news of the gospel. Without the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus, forgiveness is conditional and impermanent. God will forgive us only if, if and only if, we forgive others. If and only if we make the proper sacrifices in the temple. This story is not about the good news. Jesus is describing God's requirement about forgiveness. Peter asked for this. How many times? He asked for the rules, and that's exactly what he got. But the law isn't the whole story. Literally, it's not the whole story. There's a character missing here. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus, then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He, Jesus, says Hebrews, does away with the first, the sacrificial system, in order to establish the second, righteousness by his blood. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so we see that Jesus is the star of the story of the unforgiving servant, and he's not even in it. He breaks down the whole thing. No more bulls, no more grain, no more lambs, no more iPads, no more conditionality or impermanence. This story, this parable of the unforgiving servant, ultimately has nothing to do with your goodness, 
your righteousness, your effort or strength. It's not a story that stars you. Jesus is the star conspicuous by his absence. There is now only Jesus and his perfect sacrifice once for all. From the cross, Jesus cries, Father, forgive them. And then it is finished. With those words and that sacrifice, Jesus ends the sacrificial system. He ends conditional forgiveness. God doesn't forgive you just because, or because he loves you even, or because you're a pretty good person, or because you sacrificed a lamb or an iPad to him. He loves you and forgives you because the ultimate sacrifice has been made for you. His own son, wounded and dying, used his last breaths to ask for your forgiveness. And it is because of that, because Jesus himself begged for it and earned it, that you can be and are always forgiven. So let's close with the sending out. Remember, I promised not to send you out in fear and trembling, worried that your forgiveness, like the forgiveness that the unforgiving servant had, would be revoked. Now, we are sent out rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we here at our church say, thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Three times. Now, in our prayer book, though, if you were to look it up in the official liturgy, there are only two hallelujahs. In fact, when I sent our leaflet in to be reviewed and approved in advance of the visit of the bishop a few weeks ago, they actually emailed me back and said, you know, you don't need that extra hallelujah. And I said, oh, yes, we do. And here's why. In our funeral service. As we are pronouncing the final blessing over a saint who has been raised to new and eternal life in Christ, we acknowledge God's decree over us that we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. And then we say this incredible thing all of us go down to the dust, yet even at the grave we make our song. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Three times, three alleluias. Not two, three. Even at the grave, we make our song alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Now, truth be told, I don't know exactly how that third alleluia snuck into our leaflet every week, but I love it. I didn't do it on purpose, but it's never coming out. It reminds us of a great and abiding truth. The you that would have to pay your own debts is liable to torture and death. But that's not your whole story. Even at the grave, you make your song, Alleluia, Alleluia, 
Alleluia. You say Alleluia now. Because now in Christ, you are alive again. Every debt paid in full. Amen.